Welcome to the Mile High Five Podcast. I'm Carl Jensen. I am here with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. And we have a very cool, beery guest today. Tell us your name and what you do. Yeah, I'm Joel Larsgar, co-host of the How to Money Podcast. And I like beer and finance, so it's a perfect pairing. This is amazing. I'm about to open up a beer called Carl right here. And what are you drinking right now? I wish I was drinking a Carl right now. Um, <laughs> sadly, I'm drinking a beer called Juicy Bits, which is just as delicious, though. Yeah, very nice. Cheers. Cheers, man. Cheers, Carl. Cheers. Um, this isn't how we usually open up, but Doug, is Carl the best thing you ever put in your mouth? So, so far today. <laughs> so far today. Yes. It's delicious. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. I, like it could just spiral out of control in a very dark, you know, weird people, way. People tune into this podcast mostly for Carl's sense of humor. So yes, or, shining through the, from the get go, or lack of it. Yeah, it might get uh, progressively better or worse as we uh, progress in the podcast. But so Joel, on the How to Money podcast, you have a segment called Frugal or Cheap. Do you have your own good frugal or cheap story? So there's so many times. I think any money nerd who's listening has a time or 20 <laughs> where they were making a decision and they're like, do I go this route or that route? And uh, one way you end up being frugal, one way you end up being cheap. And the cheap thing is like, you screwed up, you should have gone the other way. You ended up wasting money because you, you took the wrong tactic. And so one for me that my wife continually makes fun of me about is when we were doing some changes to one of our homes, and like the ceiling fans needed to be replaced. And I saw this great deal for like $38 ceiling fans, brand new at Home Depot, shipped to your door. I was like, this is great. I, I, I didn't look into it enough. I was like, I think they'll work. I didn't take the proper measurements. <laughs> and we get them and we install them and they're tiny. Like they're the, they're <laughs> like little baby ceiling fans in like a decent sized room. And so, like, every time uh, she looked at those things, she talked trash to me about how, uh, not frugal, but how cheap I was. And so, to me, that's one of those, like, examples that, like, sticks with me. Uh, it was short. Like, at some point, I had to replace them. I had to go through the pain of reinstalling new ceiling fans. And it's like, it would have been better if I had just, like, ponied up a little more and gotten the right ones from the get-go. That Which, story is freaking hilarious. There's a scene from a movie called Spinal Tap where they want this stage prop it's a song called stonehenge and the guy rates 18 feet but he makes the the tick wrong so it looks like 18 inches so these guys are performing their metal song and this little tiny baby stonehenge comes down and i think one of them kicks it over at some point so i'm thinking of your your little fans it's not the size of the fan though joel it's, it's how you use your fan that's a good point that's good that's very true that's a men with small fan say i'll tell you that i'll tell you that how long were they up before you had to take them down? probably like a year and a half and I was like, I was just, I was like unwilling to admit my mistake. Uh, I was a bit stubborn in that. And I was like, no, they work. They move air, right? Just turn it up higher. <laughs> exactly. Put it on full blast. But still, no. And ceiling fans, when you live in the South, like ceiling fans are one of those things that you need. And they're so inexpensive to actually run. Uh, they make you feel what something like eight, eight degrees cooler. Uh, so you don't have to turn down the air conditioning as much. Ceiling fans are clutch. They're crucial. <laughs> but if they don't move enough air, you don't get, you know, the, the intended uh, use of them. So, well, I for one am a big fan of you, Joel. Pun intended. Carl, it's it, hey, I, it's mutual, and uh, your sense of humor is getting stronger with every sip you take. <laughs> okay, should we move on to the actual content? <laughs> Let's do it. Tell us about your childhood. I understand you had a difficult childhood maybe with around money and your parents what happened there yeah so um ultimately when i look back, look back at my childhood like it it was wonderful in so many ways my parents and i were still incredibly close to this day and like we get together twice a month get the families together like with my sisters and stuff and they're the best human beings on earth like i i there's not two people i want to emulate more than my parents which i feel really really fortunate that that's the case but my parents weren't great with money uh, growing up and I remember my dad telling me that when he got a promotion his uh, or when he landed a job down here they were like buy a house as though you're going to get a couple promotions in the coming years and so they bought more house than they could afford um, that was terrible advice <laughs> and so they did a couple moves like that they bought a new car when really 
They couldn't afford one. I remember it was a Dodge Durango, and it was shiny and it was fancy. And I remember being like thinking it was so cool that our family had this like beautiful new car. But uh, when it came when it came down to it, my parents, uh, my dad ended up losing his job in middle management, and couldn't find anything comparable uh, in a short period of time. And he's since then he's kind of actually struggled to find like a great job. And um, yeah, so basically like they had these obligations that they took out based on the assumption that the career would progress in a specific direction, in an upward trajectory. And that didn't pan out. And so I remember being 12 years old in that Dodge Durango. My parents had told me, like, at some point they're going to come take it away. And I just remember, like, well, when's it going to be? We'd, like, look out every morning and it'd still be there. And then one day it was gone. It did. The repo guy had come take the car. And, uh, and just, yeah, they filed, ended up filing for bankruptcy. My parents are fortunately in a better financial position today. But, and I just, there were a lot of arguments surrounding money too in the home. That was a, just, when you look at the stats, like my family was a statistic when it comes to, uh, fortunately my parents didn't get a divorce, but money, like the leading cause, money problems are the leading cause of divorce. And it was like definitely the leading cause of tension and stress in our household. And our, us as kids, we felt it. Yeah, my sisters, I one older, one younger, we felt it. I think I was in a particular situation as a 12-year-old where it impacted me more. My older sister was kind of like dating boys and she was out of the house a little bit more. My younger sister was a little bit too young to really realize what was going on. She's like third grade. But for me, I'm in this like most impactful state. And so what happened? <laughs> the, those you know money difficulties and money failings uh, that our family went through in childhood like resonated me, with me to the core. Like at and I think really so much of like what I've done career-wise and uh, with my personal finances has been kind of in response to a lot of that hardship. I was just thinking that age you're at 12 or so, you're like self-aware enough and you can see the context of what that means. Did you get, you know, did, did people bully you at school, school about that or anything? They bullied uh, me for other things than that, Doug, you know. So, okay. Uh, <laughs> I was a total nerd, man. Uh, still am. But, uh, yeah, no, well, I remember, yeah, th there was definitely the pressure to fit in or to buy certain clothes. And I do remember uh, wanting some of those things. My parents were like, we, we can't afford that. And I think in some ways they did a really good job of helping me understand certain things about money. They were like, listen. We've got $30 to spend on shoes for you. If you want more expensive shoes, you've got to fork over the rest of it. If you want $80 pair of shoes, Joel, like you've got to work for it and find ways to earn money. And so from that aspect, I think that's a good teaching tool. Um, and it helped me learn that like, oh, my parents don't just magically provide everything that I need. Like I've also got to figure out this way of contributing to the family, contributing to the things that I want. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, as a kid, you, you don't want to learn that lesson, but uh, in retrospect, as you grow older, you're like, I'm glad, I'm glad that I wasn't just handed everything on a silver platter, you know? And you seemingly have a healthy relationship with money now, I think. So would you say that now? I think so. It's interesting. I mean, I feel like those, those uh, money scripts, uh, I think Ramit Sethi calls them money scripts, and those things, those things stick with you in a big way. And um, it's been a long journey to not, uh, so I think I just became incredibly frugal incredibly frugal in response to kind of some of those things. I was like, I'm never going to go through that. I'm never going to let that be the case in my life, right? In my family's personal finance life. I never want to argue about money with my wife. Like I want to have enough where like, and we did like where my wife could stay home with the kids if she wanted to, or she can go work, whatever she, like where um, we were like set enough where we never had to like have knocked down drag outs about it. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it has been a long journey to, to to, to go away from just the tightwad frugal mentality to like, man, look at all the things that money can do and see like the ways that you can use it to care for other people or the ways that you can grow it and do cool stuff with it. Um, I think sometimes, uh, especially in like our types of communities, the frugal mentality can like actually overrun and ruin some of the positive things that you can do with your money. You're so much more focused on pitching a penny than you are about like investing it and doing something good with it and pursuing some like awesome stuff for your future. You know? And this is why Doug is drinking Carl beer right now. It was, uh, <laughs> it's not, it's not a high end beer. It was pretty cheap and it was on the shelf. So I just grabbed, but one thing I think about Joel is my parents weren't great with money either. And the thought I've had is I can't really blame them because the information 
wasn't there. There was no internet. There might have been high-fee advisors. So unless someone in your family figured it out and taught them, and I'll back up a second, there was no education either, right? In schools, we still don't teach it for the most part. My kids have had no finances in their whole curriculum ever, and my oldest one is a freshman in high school. So I, I think our parents might not have been good with money, but how would they have become good with money? Because there was no one to show them. They didn't have any role models and they didn't have the education. They couldn't Google, how do I invest? There was no Mr. Money Mustache, Jill, Collins, uh, index funds. I don't, they've been around for, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, uh, don't, don't go there. It'll it'll give you bad ideas, but index funds have been around for a while, but I think they've only picked up steam fairly recently. They weren't around when our parents were kids or if they were they had no no i know they weren't around when our parents were kids yeah and it's the marketing too uh you know everyone's like you know buy this these mutual funds are great like actively manage kind of things that are not going to be as good as uh you know the index funds and i cut you off what were you going to say no just i think you're you're completely right carl like i don't in many ways i don't blame my parents like i I think they're they were set up for failure and the our society sets people up for failure we don't uh i think there's something 18 states maybe make personal finance courses a requirement in high school there's more states considering that but even when you look at the curriculum that they're teaching some of it is subpar some of it is just like a mention in a class like uh some of them a few states like three or four maybe have uh, like a full-on semester-long personal finance class that you're dedicated, like you've got to take as a, at, before you graduate. And considering it's the thing, it's something we use every day of our lives. There are so many things we all learned in high school that we've never used again. Uh, there are a lot of things that were important and that we do use to this day. And um, I'm not like hating on <laughs> hating on going to high school. Like, don't don't be a college, uh, high school dropout. <laughs> but the the fact that that uh, personal finance, uh, that some of those basic things that we don't that we use them every day and no one taught us anything about them. We had to hope that our parents would. Um, I think it's unfortunate and it's and as a society, we need to do better. Um, and I think too, we need to do better than just telling people facts and we need to actually figure out how to make it relevant. Cause you think about like the one thing we did learn about personal finance at most of us in high school was the stock investing game. And that's actually kind of fun, right? There's like, um, there's a certain level of uh, just it, it's a game game that you're playing against and you're like well what's gonna I'm sure most of the kids in high school are invest, investing in crypto <laughs> right, right. most of their money because they're looking to try to win the two or three month game where they have the most money at the end of that time and we know that investing is a long-term strategy and so that game is actually the antithesis of what we should what we should be teaching our kids but we do need to be giving kids like uh, actual money in their hand to do something with we need to make it tangible and not just like um, Tell me how compounding interest works, and like we need to make it real life um, tangible for them, so that they walk away from high school and it's like, okay, I know how to use a credit card. I know what credit card points do. I know what it looks like if I pay 18% interest to the credit card company because I didn't pay my bill in full every month. Um, like those are the kind of life lessons we need to teach kids. Not how to balance a checkbook even, right? Like that's. Does anyone use a checkbook anymore? I mean, we need to teach them the real stuff they're going to need to know as they get out there in the real world. Sticking with the education area, with college, did you take on any debt? Did you get like the Hope Scholarship? I'm from Georgia as well, so I, I was able to take advantage of that. But yeah, what was college like um, for you? So I ended up for the first two years going to like a small private school in South Carolina, and I took on, I looked, hunted for scholarships, found a bunch, got got lucky in that regard, and graduated. Uh, but after two years, I, I went back and I uh, to into Georgia, so I could take advantage of the Hope Scholarship. I was like, why am I? going out of state, taking on debt, when I can go back and get it for free. And so that's what I did, and I went back and finished up for free. So I think I graduated total with like almost $13,000 in student loan debt, which very very minimal compared to like so many of the stories you hear these days. But yeah, I'm so glad I did. And, and you know, Georgia, Tennessee, states like there are a handful of states that make it easy for kids who do decently well in high school with grades to get a free or cheap education. Uh, and I think the... That's, yeah, that's another th- tough thing because parents don't, they weren't taught about finances. How do they teach their kids about what it looks like to choose the right school and to not uh, create another lifelong problem? And that's what student loans are for some of these kids. It's a lifelong problem because they rack up a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt. That's a mortgage. That's how long does it take to pay off a mortgage? For most people, 30 years, right? And so um, I think 
we're, we're setting up the next generation for just as much, if not more failure because of the lack of intentionality when it comes to personal finance education. And then going deeper and you can punt this question if you want to, but you, you said you're a middle child. I, I am as well. So nice, nice to know. And your siblings, how did they, how did they turn out? Did they have the same sort of reaction as you or what, what happened? So like I said, to a certain extent, they were both like a little more oblivious to what was happening with the family finances than I was. It, I was at a particularly a particular age where it was impactful. But um, my little sister is funny. She ended up working at the same place I worked, which was like, uh, and we can talk about this in a little bit too, but it's like this money guru. And that's how I learned so much of what I learned for 15 years working for Clark Howard. And she worked there too. And I think um, like she, that's again, part of that finance education. Like that was my education. Like I was naturally frugal, but I needed an education to figure out all the stuff I didn't know about how to do positive stuff, get into real estate investing, like investing in index funds, um, you know, like just so many things that were off my radar. I was just like, cool. I just want to make sure that I'm like, you know, uh, saving money and not spending it all and like having a big gap there. But what did I do with the gap? I didn't know, but then working with Clark really helped me figure that out. But yeah, so my sister working there, that helped a lot. My older sister was kind of like the opposite and she did make some big money mistakes, but recently she's gotten super interested in it. And so it's been really fun to connect with her on that too. It's been really exciting to see her like paying off debt aggressively and she's about to open a Roth IRA for the first time. And the fact that like, that's the other thing too, like when you're, when you're talking with close friends and family, you have to be really careful. You have to tread lightly because not everybody wants to hear what you have to say. And so like with my parents, with my sisters, there were times where I was like, I want to say something, but I can tell they don't want to hear it. And so just because that's what's best for them doesn't like you can hurt a relationship by being too pushy. And so kind of uh, having the tact of letting them know, hey, like these are things that I've thought about a lot and I'm more than willing to chat. If you ever want to, the doors open, please reach out. Uh, that was the kind of tact I found to be the best because they will reach out eventually when they're ready, but they might not be ready in that moment. And if you're like, well, here, why don't you do this, this, and this? Um, sometimes that actually like pushes them further away from that desired end goal. So, yeah. So I have one more question for you, Joel, on this topic. You mentioned you became the way you are now good with money because of the bad situation you had to go through with your parents. And I'm, I'm kind of the same way. I grew up uh, from a place where the finances weren't so great. So I was very financially insecure. So as soon as I got money, I, hoarded it and saved it. Your kids don't have the same benefit of that uh, benefit of that negative experience, I guess. So your kids are going to probably look back and see their life as a life of abundance. I know you have, your best friend is in the neighborhood. You have moving pizza nights. It sounds really awesome. I kind of want to live by you too. Me too. Really yeah, I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could get in on this, but, but anyway, how are you raising your kids to be like you to be good with money. So I think even though, um, like we've, we've like been able to grow a decent net worth and we've been really good with our money. I still want my kids to learn some of those lessons that I was taught just because we have the money to buy them something that they need or want. doesn't mean we're going to do it. And, uh, like, and I think, so it's, it's a lot of little conversations really about things that they want or they see, uh, Oftentimes it's right before the holidays and like the target ad comes in and they're like circling everything in there. And I'm like, okay, I just want you to know, like tell me your top two. And then like they giving them uh, money for doing chores around the house. It's like letting them know that work leads to income, like correlating those two things too. And then helping them realize like my next goal is to really, cause they're getting up there. They're now finally they're eight, six and two, the two year old now, obviously nothing yet, but uh, the eight and six year old getting to that point now where I can start to teach them about how your money can make money for you. And that's the next step, right? Teaching them that. Uh, and so we, we have this, there's this cool app called Go Henry, and it gives kids like a debit card and we give them like money every week for doing their chores and then they can spend it, save it, and try to like help them figure out how to give it away too. But it really, it's being intentional. And then it's not just because you have it, not giving it to them and not letting them get whatever they want. We're still like, part of it is, we're certainly not minimalist by any stretch of the imagination, but it's like a desire not to be inundated by stuff. So we don't want to buy them stuff for that, but also we don't want to spoil them. And we want them to realize that 
they have to uh, have they're going to have skin in the game and they have to use their money uh, to buy the things that they want. Um, mommy yeah. and daddy will help on some things, right? And there will be Christmas presents under the tree, but uh, but it's certainly it's not uh, it's not one of those scenarios where whatever you want you get. That's for sure. So one problem I have is one more follow up is we do the same thing for our kids. If they want something, they have to buy it. And our older one will be like, okay, I want that. She understands that she's willing to work for it. We pay them interest, 1% a month on any money they save. But our, our younger kid like doesn't give a crap about anything. So I'm like, Daphne, you have to do your chores. Don't you want money? Don't you want to buy stuff? She's like, no, I'm, I'm okay. And she just doesn't want anything. So there's no care. I'm trying to think of a care to dangle in front of her to make her want money. But... She doesn't care, so I don't know how to motivate her. You don't have to respond to this, well, but that's, that's true. I, like I'm getting, your kids are a little bit older than mine, but at eight and six, like the six-year-old, definitely the eight-year-old is so responsible. Totally, will do chores for money, and she'll ask for ways to make extra money. Like I could totally see her pursuing some sort of uh, some sort of entrepreneurship, but the six-year-old, she would rather like lay there on the floor while her sister's cleaning and so how do i reach her i don't know yet like that's something yeah. like and, and each kid is has a different personality has a different bent and you got to figure out all right how do i like teach them something it's going to look different i think and as they get older i'll figure out more what that looks like but um yeah it's certainly not it's certainly not easy <laughs> to yeah. teach kids about money right yeah yeah if you figure it out let me know and i'll, I'll, I'll do the same for you okay good well are we ready to move into the next area here yeah i think we are any further comments on no. okay yeah let's talk about real estate investing now tell us about your real estate joel yeah so i have uh live in atlanta and have a like six um five single family homes and one duplex in atlanta that i rent out and uh kind of the strategy has basically been to buy a home every two years and for a while the first two i lived in those homes and i moved out and I rented it out and i lived in this one and then I moved out and rented that one out. And um, my goal, like, yeah, there's so, you listen to a, a great podcast like Bigger Pockets, and you see all the amazing things that people can do as real estate investors and you're like, oh my gosh, the world is your potential oyster. There's so many routes you can take. But for me, it has been like specialize, get specialized knowledge in one way of doing it and just keep repeating, keep wash, rinse and repeating. And so for me, that has been mostly single family homes in neighborhoods close by where I live that I can self-manage. And I can know a whole lot about down to street level what's going on and where the dominoes are falling. What, what's the next neighborhood that's going to kind of pick up in terms of activity, in terms of desirability? And so kind of like it started with where I was living and then it was like, well, two neighborhoods over there looks like there is a lot cheaper. And at some point that's going to be super hot. And so it's, it's, it's investing for... I think of it like for, for, there's three ways I want to make money when I invest in real estate. One, it's when I buy it. I want to buy it under value, right? So if it's if I think the market value of that home is $200,000, I want to get it for 180. You know, I want to pay less than what I think it's worth. And then I want that home to cash flow every single month. I want to make money every single month on that home. Um, and then I want to not, uh, I want to bank on some amount of appreciation on that home. I want that home to have outsized gains from other places I could have put my money. And again, that's based on a knowledge of what's happening in my city, what's happening down to neighborhood level. And I know that that neighborhood is gonna do better than this one over here. Um, and it's, it's easier to do in a city like Atlanta that's growing, it's like tech companies moving in, and the closer you are into town, which is, which is where I am, I'm just two miles east of downtown, there's just more opportunity, but it's different. Like to see that home prices soaring uh, these days in so many markets, it's kind of like makes you gulp as a real estate investor. You're like, should I keep going? Like, do I buy another house now? Um, but still trying to use all those factors to make smart decisions on buying properties. And um, yeah, so I, I think I love real estate too on many different levels. I love, architecturally, like neighborhood-wise, like I love driving to my houses and like I don't mind dealing with tenants. It's not as bad as people make it sound. So yeah, I think um, that's what we talk about a lot on the show too, is just how it seems intimidating to get started in real estate investing. And really once you do it once, uh, you're like, oh, it's not that bad. It, it, but there's a lot of legwork you need to do to make sure that it's not that bad too. Mm -hmm. When did you buy your, your first place? 2009. Okay. So a good time to buy. I bought my place in 2005. That was a bad time. That was a bad time. Yeah. Yeah. Bad yeah. time. And then, where did you get your knowledge base? So 
working with Clark was a big part of that. Uh, and then it was listening to other podcasts and it was reading books and it was like, and, and then it was like, okay, I'm going to buy a house and live in it and figure out what it looks like to be a homeowner. And now I know this house decently well and I felt comfortable with that house being a rental house. Uh, and then moving on to the next one and trial and error, doing one at a time and seeing how it went. Um, you know, some people it's like, you want to go big or go home. Um, but I think it's like, no, start small and incremental and grow it slowly. And, um, and make sure, yeah, you save up the money for a proper down payment along the way so that you're not getting over leveraged, um, so that you're not making unwise decisions. Because that is one of the things about real estate investing is um, if you're putting 5% down to buy your home, there's a lot more risk there for you. So I think it's, it's wise to take it slow, take it steady, learn along the way, learn by doing, and also learn from yeah, the experts who know what they're doing. And then is there anything that you think you do that is different or against the grain from a lot of what other people do or recommend? Well, I think the just the desire not to have an enormous portfolio of real estate is one of those. It's like, keep it small is, and never sell a home. Like, that's kind of my thing. Buy that home, hold it for a long, like, just, just like holding index funds. It's like, hold it for 40 years, you don't have to... You don't have to worry about much, right? Uh, you don't have to worry about the volatility, the 30% dip last March. Same thing with buying real estate. It's uh, buy it, hold it, um, and buy a few good ones. Like, I always think about it too like this when I look for a home. Would I live in that house? And if I wouldn't live in that house, I don't want to buy it. Because I want to deal with people that I think would appreciate it the way I would. And so, yeah, I was, I'm not, that's just a factor. I'm like, well, do I want to live on like that far out of town or do I want to live over there? Or this house is a little small or it's a funky layout. Like I probably wouldn't want to live here. Um, and so those, those houses I take off the table, like it's not just about the cash flow return. It is, it is about like, well, how do I, how do I, do I like this house? Like, and do I like this area? And do I think it makes sense? So yeah, those are maybe a couple of ways I, I think about it differently. Not building big, not getting huge, slow but steady, but buy good solid properties that I think make sense over the long run. What do you see like the max number of houses that would be comfortable for you? Probably 12. Yeah, probably 10 or 12. And so I'm like halfway there. And But yeah, if I get a couple more, I'm thinking about hiring a property manager. Um, I don't think you have to. And I think people overstate the difficulty of being a landlord and managing tenants, I think uh, the more work you do on the front end, it's that much easier on the back end. Like if you do an extra five hours worth of work or three hours worth of work on the front end, like you're saving yourself like potentially dozens of hours of hassle on the, over the next year with that tenant. So I think, yeah, tenant screening is something we talk about a lot too, like how to do it well, because if you get that right, if you ace that, then you're gonna have an easy time as a landlord in so many ways. But at some point I do see myself like, yeah, hiring a property manager. But up until this point, I haven't really felt, felt the need to. Yeah, I like the way you think, Joel. I've, uh, my wife is mid works for bigger pockets, as you know. And there's people on there who are like, my goal is to own 1,000 doors. And I'm always like, why the hell would you want to do that? You better, now you're going to have to have a whole team in place to manage that. And that's going to consume your life unless you're very, very good and you've got really solid people in there. I don't know. There's a lot of value in knowing what your level is, how much you need, and uh, just stop there. A simple life is a happier life. I think. Well, that's the thing we've talked about, too, with, with our podcast. My, my co-host, Matt, and I, we run the business together. And, you know, I have a tough time with this, too, because I am a sucker for opportunity. I love a good opportunity. I love meeting somebody new. I love it when someone says, guess what? This could be big. We could totally make this happen. And uh, Matt's really done a good job of helping me pull back and say, yeah, but is that opportunity good for us? And like, what do we want our lives to look like? And he's totally right. Like, we've made it to where, hey, guess what? We'll take any opportunity that we can fit into our 35-hour-a-week work schedule, you know? And if it means, like, hopping on a plane to go do some big-wig thing, like, we're almost always going to say no. And uh, so if it fits into Monday to Friday, like, 8 p.m. to 4 p.m., half-day Fridays, like, cool. We're interested. We, You know, we're potentially interested in that. But um, there's so much to be said for the realization and the understanding of enough in your life. And you can pursue more, more, more and build, build, build and get bigger, bigger, bigger. And building something can be fun. And if that's, if that's what makes you tick, then keep building. But for most people, they're building to have something. And usually 
That is to spend more time with their family, or that is to go on more bike rides. That is to go for more hikes. That's to be out in nature more often, to do more traveling. And so I think, yeah, you, it's an important thing to come to grips with early on. Yeah, uh, Morgan Housel, who wrote the book Psychology of Money. Yeah, great one. Fantastic book. And he says, yeah, the, the, probably the number one thing people have to realize in personal finance is that the, the number one thing that's going to prevent you from screwing up is if you can figure out how to prevent the goalpost from moving. Because every sequential success, every time you, your pay increases, every time something good happens uh, or a promotion is offered to you, your eyes maybe get bigger. And you want to like ramp your lifestyle up or you want to do something like there's all sorts of choices you can make and you're tempted to make when things like that come along. But if you can keep the goalpost the same as those life changes are happening, I, I think you can't, you're going to, you're going to be happier one because you're more in tune with who you are and what you want and not just what everyone else around you is doing the, the rat race that everybody else is involved in. But uh, yeah, two, you're going to be spending your life hours the way you want to and you're not going to be like, hopefully, you're not going to be tempted to work or live a version of somebody else's ideal life. That's so good. So how do you personally do that? How do you, yeah, I struggle with, with this too. I'm like, oh, we're up to this level and we never planned for this, but now it'd be cool to be at this level, but I'm at a level I never planned for to begin with. Like life is, the, the money thing is so good. It's how, how do you stop moving the goalposts? So that's a good question, Carl. And it's a, uh, it's, a, it's obviously, it's very difficult because emotionally, the more money you have in your bank account, the more free you feel and the more you're like, all right, I can bump things up. Um, for us, it's intentionally choosing certain things that we're unwilling to raise our standard of living on. For instance, we drive, we have one car. It's a 2006 Honda Odyssey. It's powder blue. It's not beautiful, you know? And it's a mess because I have three kids. It's an utter mess. Uh, and I ride my bike around all the time because uh, I don't really like to work out, but that's the only exercise I get is riding my bike around town. And so for us, it's like, cool, that's staying the same. It doesn't matter if you give me $2 million tomorrow. I'm not getting another car. I don't care. I'm happy with what I have. Like, that's not going to happen. Um, and finding other places where uh, that you've identified beforehand. And for us, there are a few things in our life. I, I suggest people somewhere between three and five things, write them down, things that you spend money on, where if you did come into more money, you'd be willing to turn up the dial and spending on those areas. For us, like craft beer is one of those. We talk about it on the podcast, like that's our thing. We buy expensive craft beer. And the, the more money I've made over the years, I have upped my craft beer budget. We take family vacations are really important to us. Like when we go to the beach, like we've been able to up that budget so we can get a little bit nicer house, maybe a little bit closer to the beach. Um, we like, it's going to sound weird. We like folk art, my wife and I, like local artists and like kind of untrained artists. And so we've been willing to spend more money over the years on that, but it makes us so happy. We look around our house, it's filled with these gorgeous or at least in our opinion, gorgeous piece of art. Some of them are weird, but, uh, <laughs> and so for us, it's like, We've identified those things ahead of time. And so when more money flows into our life, obviously we try to save and invest more of it. But we're like, in these areas, it's okay. It's okay if we bump up our spending in those areas because we've identified a long time ago that those are important areas for us. And I think sometimes people are tempted like, I guess I should upgrade my car now because um, I got more money. Or maybe I should like move into a nicer neighborhood. And there's all these like impositions that are gonna come along the way of things that you could potentially partake in things you could potentially spend more money on but if you've like done the hard work and you dove deep and you're like no, no these are the three four five areas where i'm willing to as the money comes rolling in to spend more money on because it doesn't have to be a monastic existence that's important too right yep. because i think sometimes in the personal finance community it's like deprivation 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 where's the joy where do I, when do i get to actually use my money to funnel things funneled towards the areas that I love. Like maybe you do want to buy a beach house and that's okay. Like that's okay. I think sometimes we scold people from doing something that they love because it's not what a frugal person would do. Um, but it's just important to know and focus and find those specific few areas that are meaningful to you, even if everybody else thinks it's stupid. Mm -hmm. Here's a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to the Economy Conference. The Economy Conference, and that's spelled E-C-O-N-O-M-E. -O -O I'm not good at spelling out loud, so just bear with me. Well, it has roots in the FIRE movement. It's going to be awesome this year. Carl's actually going to be speaking. 
So that'll be pretty fun. And you may wonder why attend an event about financial freedom when you can educate yourself online or listen to podcasts like this one. Well, community matters very much. And when you decide to take an unconventional path, you may need a little support. Economy gives you the opportunity to surround yourself with an engaged community of people who are doing incredible things with their finances. Whether you're well on your way to financial independence or still struggling with debt, or maybe you're a student and you're about to launch your career, Economy is a great place to uh, meet other people and get more involved in the FIRE community. And actually, we talked to Diana Merriam back in episode 14. Now, I haven't personally met her yet, not in person, and I thought we were actually going to meet at Camp Phi, but she had some travel issues and she actually did her presentation remotely which was pretty amazing. There were no technical issues and she did a great job. So I'm looking forward to checking out Economy in November. I recently got my ticket, so I'm looking forward to attending, checking out Cincinnati. I've only been to the airport and I'm really looking forward to getting some of that weird spaghetti chili concoction from whatever restaurant it is, but it'll be awesome. Hopefully we'll see you there. Back to the show. Carl, I'm curious, what are your three to five for for you and your family? My three to five? Your three to five things that are really important. You spend more money on and people would be like, Carl, that's wasteful. What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. I I guess I was thinking about this this week and I had a conversation with with Bob Haynes uh, a couple days ago. And one of the joys about having money is being able to use it to build better friendships. And one of the things I did this week where, where you two were there, we spent like 500 bucks on Franklin barbecue. And I just invited a lot of people we liked over and said, Hey, free lunch, just come up and get all these people like, well, where do I Venmo you or no? Like, this is our gift to you. And I like being able to do stuff like that. If I had a, if our money got a little bit bigger, I might, we might even buy like a, a nice place in the mountains and just say, Hey, friends, we've got a place. Come here, come stay here whenever you want. We might be there too, but let's hang out together and it would be a way to build on our friendships. I'm trying to think uh, a couple other things. I, I guess be- a good one though, man. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Being generous with the people around you and like, like the line, like we just included a line item in our budget recently that was like buying stuff, like stuff for our neighbors. Like, uh, so we just get a couple handles of bourbon and we start making old fashions on the porch or whatever, Yeah, whatever it is, but like have that line item so that you can be hospitable or that you can be generous with people. Yeah. You're really good at that. And that is an awesome way to allocate money that, yeah, I like that you know that about yourself. It's, it's nice to give and not have expectations for Thanksgiving this year. We rented a house and I invited all my family. I'm like, Hey, everyone show up. We're, we're going to be there from this and this date. So show up whenever you want. So that's probably the main thing. Other than that, it's just small stuff. I don't know. I, I can't think of much more. I guess when we do drink, I don't drink that much, but when we do, it's really good beer, like this uh, fancy beer with a picture of the dinosaur, which apparently goes to support the Field Museum in Chicago. This is called King Sue by Toppling Goliath. And the other thing is really good. So the things I use on a day-to-day basis that that help my life, like this computer, this is a MacBook. I think even back in 2014, it cost over 2000 bucks, but it's been great. It's never had one problem. And my phone, I want a good phone with a good camera because these are the things I depend on to run my life. So I'm going to get quality things. But then other stuff like cars and my lawn, like I don't, you, you've seen my lawn. It doesn't look too great. <laughs> <laughs> my cars, you know, my primary driver is a 2003 Honda Element. Joel and I, Joel saw it in Atlanta when I drove it there one time. But how about you, Doug? What are your three to five? I like uh, beer as well. So that's a nice common thread. Maybe why we're all sitting here together anyway. And food, I will spend on food, whether it's at a restaurant but uh, or just like buying good meat. And I, I like cooking a lot. And I like technology too. So like we're using a nice camera and like I have a podcast recorder over there. So I'll spend on like quality items that I know I'll be able to use and be productive with them and travel as well. And then the, the final thing is probably like convenience. I will pay more now to save time and not have a hassle and just know I, I don't I'm not gonna have to look for parking as much I'm just gonna park in the the easier spot to get to so yeah if I could buy my way to get like 15 more minutes I'll probably do it one other thing in my life is I did have to order ceiling fans and I ordered some pretty epic ones but I went to those and I looked at them I'm like those are awesome but they're like 
180 bucks a piece. So then I went online and someone had like a broken box deal for like 40 bucks a fan. It was like amazing. So I'm like, shit, I'll take four of them. So, <laughs> nice. uh, You're so much smarter than me by getting the right ones from the get-go. Uh, oh, Joel, I wouldn't say that at all. I've, made, <laughs> I've, I've screwed up many, many, many things. So I think we were mainly talking about real estate for a second there, but do you invest in the markets or are you just a real estate guy? Yeah, no. So it's, it's always been my, like for the longest time worked for a traditional company and had the salary and the 401k and trying, yeah, trying to save in the 401k like a minimum of 15% of my own money and then to match extra and then trying to you know, contribute to and maxing out a Roth as well. Did that for years and straight into the total stock market index fund. Um, and so just like pretty much everybody else in the buy community, just going with the cheapest Vanguard funds possible. And uh, yeah, so it, then it was anything over and above that was money like that I was willing to, to save and funnel towards investments, went to real estate and saving up for that next down payment. That's again why it's hard to do it much quicker if you don't want to take on crazy amounts of leverage. It was like uh, when you're making 50, 60, thousand dollars a year as I was making my way up it's like putting that much in there and you're like trying to save up for that next down payment um, plus just eat <laughs> like stuff like that um, yeah but yeah I, I like the idea of they're, they're both they're just diverse ways of doing it this total stock market fund in and of itself is incredibly diversified but when you add to it uh, a few local real estate properties. I think that just, for me, made me feel more comfortable when it came to my diversification. And I just like the idea of investing in something that, that provides cash flow at the same time. Um, real estate is a very stable asset. And I was, I, I was worried a little bit during the pandemic, and obviously a lot of landlords had a lot of difficulties. And a lot of tenants had a lot of difficulties paying their rent, right? And so the you know, federal government stepped in to help in many ways. A lot of those funds didn't make it to the people it was supposed to go to, sadly. So um, yeah, it led to a lot of hardship. But it kind of made me think like, wow, I was fortunate, made it through, most of my tenants were okay, worked with the ones uh, who it wasn't. But that's another, like, if you're gonna invest in real estate, you have to have more money in cash. You have to be prepared for those down months. You have to, whoever thought a pandemic would come along, but I was like, thank goodness I'm prepared with, with money in reserves in case uh, one of my tenants End up, ends up living there for a year without being able to pay. Like I could, I could stomach that. Um, but yeah, I like the idea of both and. And real estate investing is not for everybody. Um, and but, uh, and if you don't want to actually invest in specific individual properties, there are other ways to go about getting some access to investing in in real estate and in rental properties in particular. But um, but I love that. I don't think it's as hard as people make it sound. I think more people should consider it. Um, and I think if you're a small mom and pop, if you've got one, two, three, four properties in your area, it's just another hedge, it's another diversification strategy. And it's a potentially like, for me, it's way, I've had far better returns in my real estate ventures than I have in just the market. So, hmm. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, shall we move on? Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about Clark Howard. So you used to be the producer for the Clark Howard show. That's correct. That's right. Yeah. And I don't know if I'd ever heard of Clark before I met you, but after I met you, I started listening to him and I thought he was so good. It felt like a, a kind relative. It, he felt like a, it felt like a friend talking to me over the radio. Like I thought if I ever met him in real person and talked to him, we would just, it would feel like I was talking to old friends. And I also liked him because he wasn't trying to so as far as I knew, when I listened, he was never trying to sell a bunch of bullshit, like some other radio people whose names I will not mention. <laughs> Simply Safe. Although if you want to sponsor our podcast, Simply Safe, uh, I don't know what the hell you are. <laughs> but, yeah. but anyway, yeah, Clark Howard seemed very pure in his intentions. What was it like to work for him, and how did that job come about? Yeah, I've always said it, it's, it, it was like being apprenticed under the best guru, money guru out there. Uh, Clark, and, he, and you're, you're spot on with everything you said about him. And uh, people, like the number one question people would come up and ask me after working for him for a long time was, is he, is he the same person off the air as he is on the air? And the answer was, oh, yes. Like, he is most definitely the same guy. Generous, treated his employees well. But he was also just a brilliant human being, too, when it came to the way he thought about money, when it comes to the way he thinks about money. He's still doing this podcast. Um, he uh, has a lot of wisdom to share. And I'm thankful that he's out there. And for me, it was like this 15 year long apprenticeship to sit under a guy who is a master of so many of these concepts. And, 
And then I've got my own twist on some of these things, right? Like I, I kind of like distilling everything that he's putting in there and I'm like, awesome. I agree with him on almost everything, but I also like live it out a little bit differently. Uh, but I have nothing but admiration, respect, thankfulness for Clark, who he is and everything that he's done. For our city, for, uh, for the city of Atlanta, he's been, talk about generosity, the amount of money that guy has given away, what he's done to help build habitat homes for people in need. He, he does Clark's Christmas Kids every year, which gives away you know, 10,000 presents or, or listeners come in and buy presents for kids in, in foster care in the state of Georgia who wouldn't have presents otherwise. But he's got that kind of clout with people because he is that good of a dude. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, the guys like him don't come along. Uh, they're like one in a billion for sure. Yeah. One, I'm surprised you had not heard of Clark before, but I grew up listening to him on like WSB and talk radio and he was on, so channel two, the, that's right. Yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. So I like, I remember him from, but I don't, I can't remember not knowing about Clark Howard. It's kind of crazy. Yes. Yeah, for sure. He was on around the nation and there were other places we would visit when we would go on book tours or, uh, go on, you know, he would go do a local radio appearance and there were other places where it felt kind of like that. But for instance, if you go to Costco with Clark in Atlanta, it was like a mob. It was like he was a <laughs> Korean boy band or something like that. Like in Atlanta. That was the kind of response people gave to him. Because um, Clark is a huge fan of Costco. And, uh, and so when people would see him there, they knew that. And they're like, oh my gosh, it's Clark Howard. Uh, and so it was always just so fun to see the response. Because he had just been truly generous with information, with his time, with uh, and, and just empathetic and caring in the way he talked about it. I don't think you mentioned, you referred to somebody else who will not be named the uh, Voldemort of uh, <laughs> personal finance radio talk. But I think your your approach and how how you think about people, how you talk to people, how you, um, like, the ways that you disseminate the information matters, right? The ends don't justify the means. And you, the, the means are important. The way you do that work and the way you reach out to people is crucial. And you have to build trust and you have to consistently deliver help and value. And like, so that's what we strive to do. And that's what I learned from Clark. It's like he's constantly delivering value and helping people. And that's, that's what I want to model and that's what I want to do too. Yeah. What years did you work for him? So 2000. Seven to uh, yeah, the very beginning of this year to 2021. Oh, I didn't know it was that recent. Yeah, yeah. Oh, holy cow. So let's see. Yeah, so you left this year and why'd you leave? So Clark retired from radio in December and went podcast only. And he was like, hey, you can stick around and help me out with the podcast. And Matt and I, we've been doing our thing with, the, with our podcast for about three years. And it was growing and it was to the point. And the pandemic happened and Matt was a wedding photographer and there were no weddings and so he had already kind of gone full time and it felt like this perfect time to leave uh certainly hard and sad in, in a lot of ways because uh, he's like a mentor to me and a good friend and so to leave uh just a work situation that was ideal in a lot of ways was like oh my gosh am i really doing this but uh but then to get to try this thing out and try to go full time creating something that you love and that you want to like you want to grow and put out there in the world with your best buddy it was like we got to give this a shot and so when he retired from from radio still doing his podcast it was like okay now it feels like the right time to to say goodbye so and you still talk like i think clark howard was on your podcast yeah oh yeah we still talk we still text and he yeah he came on a couple months ago yeah. and my little sister she still works there i still like yeah i can't stay in touch with everybody and um yeah so he takes the staff on a trip every year. That's one of the generous things he does. So I was able to go to uh, six continents while I worked for Clark. Holy. Um, and so I got to see the world because of him too. Like, I mean, yeah, I owe so much to him. But so if my little sister, maybe she'll take me along on one of those trips and I'll get to pal around with him again. But yeah, uh, so I still keep in touch and have a great relationship with everyone over there. Awesome. I, I know Clark has talked about owning Teslas too. I think he's got a couple. His wife yeah. has one and he has one. Have you been Are able you to... I am jealous because I, I, I really want one, so I live vicariously through Clark Howard. Have you ever got to ride in Clark's Tesla? Which he one? Me, he let me drive it once. Does he have the Model S, the big he one? Has, he had the Model S. I, I think he has a Model S and a Model 
three now. Okay. But it's fun to drive. Man. They're beautiful cars. Ugh. You got to get one. What's, hold, what's holding you back? Right? Yeah, I, I've driven them all except for okay. the Model X, the uh, big SUV with the silly Golding doors. Yeah, I've, yeah, yeah, they're they're great. I I will get one. It'll probably. I'm waiting for. There's going to be some big tech advances very soon that they've announced. So, my original trip. So I got to tell you, my original plan a year ago was to. There's uh, the Tesla factory is like seven miles, um, I think that way. And they're going to offer factory delivery, like what they do for cars in Europe. You can go buy your Porsche and pick it up in Stuttgart or wherever, however you pronounce that, where Porsches <laughs> are made. And they're going to do that here. So my original FinCon plan was to buy a one-way ticket, pick up the Tesla, and drive it back home. But chips, COVID, everything is delayed. So I'll do that n- next year. Gotcha. Well, it's going to be awesome. Yeah, his the, the Teslas are beautiful cars. And um, and he's always he's, Clark's always been like a, a forward thinker when it comes to like tech and uh, transportation. I think he like invested in a company that built a three-wheel car that got like 100 miles to the gallon back in the day that never took off. But he's just always, like he had a natural gas-powered car for a while. He just kind of like digs the like money savings and the environmental change that can come from, he, mostly the money savings, he always stresses that. But like, I think he takes both those into consideration and he's always, he's willing to put his money where his mouth is on that. And that's like, talk about like, if there's three to five things that you can put your money on, like. Clark wears his, uh, he calls it the Clark form. It's like, it's uh, cargo shorts and like a basic polo from Walmart or Target. Uh, but he's willing to, and you know, and he eats at McDonald's, but he's willing to put his money where his mouth is when it comes to a Tesla. That's one of his like few places where he, he splurges. Is, is that through three wheeled car company? Is that Aptera? Do you know, or they're, they're one of the ones that for that. It was really, that. it was something called, I think I want to say it was called like the freeway or the free wheel or something like that. Uh. And it was like, Two decades ago. Okay. Yeah. So it was like oh, before wow. I even, I even like started working there. Yeah. So tell us about how to money. When did you start your podcast? Why did you start it? And tell us about your co-host Matt. Yeah. So we started it uh, about four years ago, and I guess the reason why we started it was Matt and I just said like, "What do we do?" Matt Matt one day was like, "What do we do every time we get together?" And I was like, "Drink a beer." And he's like, "Yeah." What do we talk about? Well. We talk about personal finance a lot, I guess, like investing, real estate, stuff like that. And he's like, yeah, why don't we try to record that and turn it into a show? And I've worked in radio. I love long form audio. I was like, let's do it. Let's give it a shot. And so we started recording evenings, like once a week at his dining room table, putting those episodes out, seeing what stuck and like just kind of growing the audience. And then eventually, um, got lucky a lucky break with a media company that was like hey we like what you're doing do you guys want to like come join our team and really like, okay and so um yeah i've been lucky lucky but basically part of the reason we started it too when it comes to the personal finance space there are a lot of great people in there but we, we and we kind of questioned whether or not our voices were necessary in the conversation like does the world need joel and matt to talk about personal finance when there's like a hundred good ones out there and what we came to the realization of was there's something different and unique about our perspective, our point of view, and our rapport. Because we're truly best friends. Matt and I have been best friends for a decade. We live a half mile apart. Our kids hang out all the time. Our wives are good friends, like probably best friends too. And so like, it was, it's one of those things where you can't fake that in an on-the-air thing. And it feels like we're inviting people, uh, our listeners, into like into our friendship, into a beer at the table with us to talk about money. We're trying to make it approach, approachable, jargon-free, down-to-earth. And I think we realize there's a need for that in the personal finance space where people have um, a decent amount of knowledge that we've acquired over the years, like reading about these things, learning about these things, doing these things, putting them into practice. Um, and there's just, I think there's need for more creators because especially as the media space gets fractured, um, it's we're breaking breaking things up and every, people can get exactly what they want almost right um, and if you're quite, I think if, if anybody out there listening is questioning like whether they should start something I bet you guys questioned before you started like does the world need another financial independence podcast yes it does because it needs your voices right like and I think there's something important about that were there any particular challenges like early on like finding your voice and you know demonstrating the rapport that you had on audio in a recorded format? Oh yeah, totally. Growing pains out the wazoo. And just, uh, I, like, I, 
I don't. I think I. I don't think I could go back and listen to those first like fifty episodes <laughs> or thirty episodes. Where like they were just so bad. Like they were so bad. And I think like we thought that infusing our personality meant we had to just shoot the shit for twenty minutes at the beginning of the podcast, and then people would feed uh, give us feedback, and they're like, "Hey guys, we kind of tuned in for some like personal finance content, and you guys seem fine, like decent guys, but can you like get to the stuff?" And we were like, "Oh, yeah, we can do that." So we kind of realized that like people want to get to know you, but in the context of delivering valuable information. And so we we joke a lot, we laugh a lot, um, but the information is front and center. Uh, and our friendship is certainly a part of the podcast, and our sense of humor is a part of the podcast. But for us, the information takes precedence, and we realized that after after yeah, there was definitely growing pains along the way, and people were like, "That's not what we're looking for." And uh, when you get enough of that, uh, yeah, you, there'll be one hater or two haters, but when there's enough people saying like, "Guys, you got to get to it," like take it to heart and see you know change things up, um, and that helped a lot. Like those early. Emails. Uh, we we ha- we started off with like a. We told people at the end of our show, go to howtomoney.com slash do better, and give us some feedback, because we wanted we wanted that honest criticism. Like we called it out because we didn't want to, like, learn the lessons the hard way. We wanted people who cared about the show, who got to the end of an episode, to say, you know what, kind of like what you're doing. But if you could like eliminate this and maybe do better in this area, I'd probably like it a lot more. And maybe I'd tell a friend about it. And so for us early on, that was a great way to garner that feedback and to really like hone in on our voice and what we were supposed to be doing in the space. And you mentioned 30 to 50 episodes. Would you say that's about how long it took to like get your stride and, and you guys were a little bit tighter then? Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, I, if I look back, if I went back and listened to like episode 60, I would probably not cringe <laughs> to the same degree. But we've even since then, I mean, it really is a growing and learning. Like even this year, we've made tweaks and there are things like we feel like we kind of know we have a formula-ish to a certain degree that we want to kind of fulfill that keeps the listeners like knowing what's going to happen in the episodes. But um, at the same time, like always willing to change and update. And like, for instance, podcast listening habits, most people want podcasts to be a little bit shorter. Like if they see a four hour episode, which some people have been releasing, like they're gonna shrink away and say like, I might skip that one and move on to the next one. And so um, for us, like not lowering the times because um, everyone else says to, but it's like, is that what our listeners want? Asking that question and maybe like trying to condense things down a little bit so it's more palatable. Um, But making sure that, yeah, like you're doing what you want to do, but you're make, you're keeping the listener preeminent too because you're asking them to take time out of their day to listen to what you have to say. And if you waste their time, they're going to be upset. Um, and so you you want to make sure you're delivering something that the listeners are that the listeners want and that they enjoy. Is there anything um, sort of on the table right now where you guys are thinking, hey, this is a tweak, and, and maybe you haven't done it yet or something yeah. super recent? I'm just curious, like what's freshest on your mind? Hmm. Well, we, I guess we've talked about, so right now we do have three episodes a week. We've talked about, like, do we release another one? If we do, is it, like, super short? Is it, like, five or six minutes? Because are those bite-sized chunks? Is that what somebody's going to, like, maybe glom onto? Because they don't want 45 minutes on Social Security and whether it's going to be there or not when they retire. But if we can do, like, a bite-sized five-minute chunk of that for them, like, is that what's going to like get maybe a new sort of listener that otherwise wouldn't listen to a personal finance podcast. So I think when you're, we want to keep the audience that we have engaged, but also there's other people out there who want to learn about personal finance and they're intimidated. And so what can you do to break down the barriers to make it less intimidating, to make it more approachable? And sometimes it's literally the time they see in their podcast feed or if someone recommends it to them and they're like, I'm not going to listen to like an 82 minute episode about index funds, but I will listen to like five minutes of this guy, like maybe on 2x speed and see if it's any good or not, you know? And then sort of follow up on that. So you you guys are with a network, right? Yeah. When you want to make a decision or a change, do you have to check with anyone? Like, do you guys run the show? You can do whatever you want or how does that work? I have no idea. Yeah, the great thing is it's basically like being with a network was, they helped us find more of our audience, which was really helpful. Uh, more people who are already listening to podcasts, there are other podcasts on that network. They said, hey, we've got a new personal finance podcast, go check it out, which helped us find other listeners. 
And then the other thing they do a great job of is selling ads on the show. And they do a great job of asking us which ones we're comfortable with or not comfortable with. So we have a lot of say over that too. Um, and then when it comes down to the show content, what we do, what we release, um, that's completely up to us. And so it's nice. Like we don't have all that much uh, interaction on like a day-to-day -day basis with the network. It's really Matt and I doing how to money and uh, making the best product, the best thing that, that we can for our listeners. So um, yeah, it's a good question though. That's super cool. All right. Our, our origin story is nowhere near as cool. We weren't best friends. We were friends, but no, actually, we weren't friends at all. What happened was... <laughs> Enemies? Yeah. That no, there was... I would listen to that. There, there's a website, so you can go online now, or there's all these apps to find partners like uh, eHarmony and Tinder if you're looking for something else and all that. And there was one for, like, podcast partners, so I went on that and searched for one. And I, I did like the filter by area code, and then I did I clicked the little thing to find like lowest cost one, and and Doug was the cheapest. <laughs> and I'm cheap, but it turned out like the cheap versus frugal thing. I totally cheaped up, but I, I got lucky because it it worked out. So I, I bought Doug. I think it was like ten bucks or something. I, I don't know, ten bucks <laughs> yeah, an hour. And he, I think this is a long term relationship here too. Yeah. Well. Actually, I mean, the thing is, I thought you were going to tell the real origin story because you found my OnlyFans and you were like, holy shit, this dude lives so close. We should, we should hook up. Nudes. It's yeah. amazing. <laughs> Your OnlyFans is epic. <laughs> well, this is really just a lead generation podcast for Doug's OnlyFans. Yeah. yeah. OnlyFans.com slash Mile High Fi. No, that's not a thing. We, we probably do need to set something up. We talk about it often enough, so... Uh, we should. We'd have. Can you have negative, like fans on OnlyFans or like negative subscribers? I, I think that's the direction people would pay us not to post. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good way to get rich, right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we won't post if you, you got to raise a thousand dollars this month. So as we're we're rounding down, what does a perfect day or week, a couple days look like for you? Yeah. I think like um, when you love what you do. Like I'm excited. Like we record three episodes a week. And when we don't record an episode, I'm kind of bummed. Like I love record. Like I, like you guys asked me to come on here, and I'm like, oh heck yeah! Like talk about money with cool dudes. Sign me up. I'm always interested in that. And so for me, it is you know it is working 30, 35 hours a week, and uh, it is spending the mornings with my kids, being home for dinner, uh, reading books before bed with them, uh, it, riding bikes with them, um, making memories like that. We love our neighborhood. Going for walks, like going for a hike on the weekends. Um, it's pretty basic, like it's nothing fancy, you know? It is really neighborhood bike, walk, uh, hike centric. And um, if, we're, if we're doing those things, like that's a great week. That's a great week for us. Like, do we like to go to the beach like during the summer for a week or two? Yeah, we like to do stuff like that. But we like, I feel like we, we feel so fortunate because have been working to this point for a long time working for yourself, working with your best friend a half mile away. Like I ride my bike over to his house and we work out of his basement and you get to like, sometimes we get distracted and we talk about like a random topic for like an hour, but it's okay because like we're our own bosses, you know, and like nobody can say like, stop talking about that podcast you listen to or stop talking about that weird thing that happened in the news this week. We can do it. We can just like shoot the shit for an hour if we want. And so, um, I feel like I'm like living the dream man, like for real. And um, I don't know. I don't know what could make it better. And a huge part of that too is the goal posting we talked about. Like, I don't have these like outsized needs that I don't feel like I have the money to fund. And like, if you keep it simple um, and just enjoy the little things along the way, like my kids aren't getting any younger, and those early years are the most fun. Well, I don't know. Maybe they get better, but. Um, it, it's a, it, it's not to undersell the difficulty <laughs> of those early years. It's hard. It's a lot of work too, but I know that like you never get them back. And like, I always see, like, I'm always reminded of that when we walk around, I'm with my girls or I'm with all three kids and I see an older couple look at us with like this, like this look of like joy and sadness at the same time. And they're like, <laughs> just enjoy it while it lasts. And it's like, oh. I'm like reminded, oh yeah like this isn't gonna last forever and these are really awesome days and i'm gonna feel exact same way as i look at in 20 years when i'm looking at other families like i'm gonna be like devastated that my kids have flown the coop and so um i i think having some of that flexibility earlier on while your kids are still young um like that was another thing i missed growing up like 
my dad works 60 hours a week and it's like i don't want to do that i want to be there and if they're like i just want to go play catch or i just want to go ride bikes i want to be there for that stuff it's nothing fancy um but that's the stuff that really like moves the needle the stuff that matters yeah that's awesome yeah any other questions for you? Um, I've got one other comment. Uh, Joel, I think I first met you at the 2014 FinCon. Was that the one in New Orleans? Was it New Yeah. Was there one at St. Louis? Was that the year before? That was 2013. Were you at that one that as well? Okay. Slot, but we might not have met till New Orleans. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure. I remember the first time I really got to know you, like we'd kind of met in hallways, and I think like you'd be going down the escalator, I'd be going up, and I'd see you because you're tall. Like, oh, there's Joel again. But, but but then there was a night, and I remember, I think it was kind of rainy and crappy, but we had rented a house, and you came back with us, I think you and, uh, I don't remember the other guy's name, but we we sat there and drank beers, That's and I'm right. like, yeah. We rented a cool house in New Orleans. Yeah, it was, was a cool house with Brandon, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Brandon, Med Scientist, Brandon, and a couple other people, and it was a really good time, but the the highlight of that night was probably hanging out with you that night and getting to know you. And it's been neat over the years. I've been to Atlanta. We've had beers and uh, just friends. So it's kind of, I feel it's full circle now. We're at FinCon and I guess we're working kind of professionally right now. Maybe I don't think we're making any money, Doug. So <laughs> might be making a little bit of money, but this feels re really good right now. And I appreciate your friendship. And thank you so much for doing this today. Dude, I feel the same way about you. And as you know, as anybody who's come to FinCon a few times knows, like in those friendships, they, they become really meaningful. You meet them the first time, you're like, that was a cool person. We have some stuff in common. You keep coming for years and you stay in touch and stuff. And you're like, these friendships are deep and meaningful. How is that yeah. possible? Well, they're across the country. Yeah. You have this thing in common, like these, you have one main thing in common, which ultimately gives you something initially to talk about off the get from the get go. And then you realize you have all these other things in common. And like, there's so many just, um, anybody who comes here too, they're like, everybody's down to earth. Everybody's approachable. Why yeah. is that? And I don't, I don't know what's in the water here, but it is true. And there's so many cool people. And like, Doug, I haven't known you as long, but I'm glad to know you. And for me, like Carl, like has been um, definitely one of my best friends here. And just to yeah, have a, known each other that long now and all the fun we've had, even though we don't live in the same town, yeah. which we can change that. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, it's awesome, dude. It's, it, it's pretty neat when you cannot see someone for like two or three years and then you see him and it's like instantly it's like there was no time in between or just resume wherever we left off last time and poof so i love exactly. that yeah it's been good to get to know you yeah. and uh i think we're probably going to drink some more beers here before too long but where can people find your show and find you in general so you get our website howtomoney.com or wherever you listen to Mile High Five, just type How To Money in the search bar. You'll find our podcasts. And we try to release three episodes a week, uh, which is a lot, but um, uh, you don't have to listen to all of them. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, that's how you can find us. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, Joel.